Why don't we just uh, begin uh, this this evening with uh, prayer, and uh, then um, I'll uh, kind of sketch out what uh, what I had in mind for this evening, and uh, kind of give you a, an overview of the topic and what we uh, would like to accomplish in the next uh, week or two, and uh, and then uh, we'll proceed from there. So let's ask God's blessing upon our study, though, this evening. Our Father in heaven, we uh, praise you for this time to uh, break uh, the bread of life, uh, to gather your people, to worship you, uh, to adore you. For indeed, Lord, you are worthy. You alone are worthy of praise and, and thanksgiving and, and our worship. And Father, we uh, ask that you would uh, hear our request that uh, your spirit would would uh, fill us and make us, uh, Lord, very earnest and attentive listeners this evening. Participants, Lord, in thinking and meditating, uh, in uh, uh, learning the truths that uh, come from your word. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would would uh, bless uh, each family, those who are unable to be here this evening. Uh, we ask, Lord, your blessing upon them. Some are ill. Uh, some, uh, Father, uh, have other commitments. But, Father, we pray that you would uh, bless and keep them. And, Lord, we uh, do praise you that uh, we have an infallible word that we can go to, uh, one which uh, will give us uh, the truth and one which will not lead us astray. We are thankful, Father, that uh, your Spirit uh, opens that word for us. And, uh, Lord, apart from his ministry in our midst, we would uh, uh, certainly be ignorant of the truths that are, that are there. Uh, we pray, God, that uh, you would uh, give us ears to hear and a heart to receive and apply these truths. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, what I planned on doing was uh, going through our study for this evening and then having a time of prayer afterwards. And uh, I think to a certain extent as we get into the study, uh, we'll be doing a little bit of groundbreaking in some new areas. Um, and for that reason, uh, we will uh, probably uh, uh, at this point, uh, maybe even for some of some of the uh, uh, elders, uh, we will just, uh, I will just be, some of these things I'll be presenting uh, to you as basically my, my uh, uh, convictions at this point. Uh, I'm submitting these two uh, to you and um, asking you to ponder, uh, to consider them. And uh, I'm sure that uh, we'll get uh, plenty of feedback from you, uh, uh, if we can always count on that. And... Uh, and then uh, uh, we'll uh, also be discussing these uh, issues uh, in session meetings to come as well. In response to uh, some questions that uh, ladies in our church um, presented to the elders uh, concerning biblical roles of women in various areas of, uh, of uh, church ministry, uh, we uh, decided that we would address these particular uh, questions. These ladies have been very patient. Uh, I think they were, the initial letter I think was dated somewhere in April of this year. And uh, 
recognizing that uh, the elders have had a lot on their plate um, and recognizing that we've not all been here. Uh, some of us I arrived in, uh, in the first part of August and, uh, and uh, Lyndon has uh, had various commitments that uh, really it's not been uh, the uh, uh, easiest thing to, uh, to delve into. But we do want to now, uh, after uh, having had the opportunity to talk briefly amongst ourselves as well as uh, for myself to consider these issues, uh, to begin to uh, clarify uh, some of these, um, these particular points. Now, I want to make it clear that we do not have some kind of modern feminist movement uh, in our church. Uh, that's, not why, uh, that's not why these issues uh, uh, came up in the first place, but rather... Quite to the contrary, um, in the interest of not overstepping uh, biblical bound boundaries, the ladies have asked for some uh, biblical guidance in certain areas. And so we're very thankful for their concern. And uh, uh, we hope that, uh, that uh, these, these uh, Bible studies uh, will provide some, some answers for some, to some of their questions. Specifically, uh, we want to focus our attention upon the role of women uh, in the church. And uh, um, we probably will be making applications and we can even delve into, um, after we lay out this particular, um, the principles for this particular topic, perhaps we can talk about the role of women in the home and the role of women in society at large. But uh, specifically, what we're focusing on is the role of women in the church. The format that, uh, that I would encourage us to follow uh, as we uh, proceed to this is I would uh, anticipate lecturing uh, a lecture format uh, that I would just uh, continue to, to speak and uh, uh, to expound uh, various principles in the scripture and uh, do so probably for between 45 minutes to 55 minutes, something like that. And uh, at the uh, end of that time, then uh, we would open up the Q&A to give you an opportunity to, uh, uh, to ask uh, questions and uh, build questions and that kind of thing. Uh, I think this will help uh, continuity for me uh, to be able to proceed straight through the material that I have. Uh, uh, the questions are always good, but many times those questions are even answered in the course of the uh, in the course of the uh, lecture before uh, uh, before the uh, uh, Q&A uh, period and uh, uh, or before the questions are asked in the course of the Bible study. And so if they're not answered, uh, we would encourage you to ask them uh, during that uh, period that follows. And I think it would also facilitate our taping of, uh, of these studies uh, if we can get through the lecture part uh, and then ask questions afterwards. But I would encourage you um, uh, someone who just recently uh, uh, in Prince George passed on one of the tapes from, uh, uh, from our, uh, a study that we did. Uh, I think it was the first one that I did when I was uh, uh, being interviewed uh, yeah, on courtship, right? And uh, this was uh, shown to a friend and uh, it was very encouraging to him uh, the uh, kinds of questions uh, that uh, were asked. This is a pastor that uh, viewed this and uh, uh, really uh, uh, helped give him a flavor of what uh, you know kind of a church we are. Sometimes uh, 
Uh, people may have the wrong impression uh, based on certain views that might be held, but uh, to be able to listen and, and to, to see the kind of care uh, and the way that we uh, speak to one another and this type of thing really uh, encourage this pastor greatly. So I do think that that's an impo- important part of our study as well. Well, let me <clears throat> begin then with all of that uh, uh, laid out. I would encourage you to write questions down uh, if you uh, if you come up with a question and, uh, and then uh, hold them and we'll uh, get to them. I'd like to first of all give uh, some foundational principles as we talk about the role of women in the church. Some foundational principles. First of all, Women are not uh, metaphysically subordinate to men. That is, they are not subordinate to men as to essence or nature. Uh, They are not inferior in that regard. From the very beginning, as we look at creation account in Genesis chapter 1, I'll read verses 26 through 28. Genesis 1, 26-28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here we find, uh, before sin has entered into the uh, picture at all, uh, as God creates a man in verse 26, I think we should understand that let us make man in the generic sense, in the collective sense, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness because we find a plural verb now, let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. And so here we find uh, that man viewed collectively as as to male and female, which becomes more clear in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That uh, taken collectively, that uh, man and woman bear the image of God. And uh, that uh, pertains to, uh, to uh, the essence of man, uh, to their very being, uh, to their nature, uh, that man is made in God's image and knowledge and truth and holiness and with dominion over the creatures as our uh, confessional standards uh, teach. And um, and so I think that uh, we can... Uh, that's a fairly established, I think, truth which we, with which we'll not need to spend too much time. Uh, moving on to another foundational principle. 
women are not only not metaphysically subordinate to men, but women are not spiritually subordinate to men. Uh, That is, as to the grace of life, uh, women are not subordinate to men. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. In the whole context of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, the first part at least, uh, uh, Peter is uh, addressing women as to their role uh, uh, in the home, as to their place uh, under the authority of their husbands. But a very interesting point is made in, in verse 7 with regard to the husbands and how to, they're to treat their wives. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Note in this particular passage that uh, very clearly Peter says that wives are heirs together of the grace of life with their husbands. They do not take some kind of back seat when it comes to their position before God. They are heirs with their husbands. And uh, on that account, uh, for that reason, husbands uh, are uh, exhorted uh, that they are to honor uh, their wives and uh, to do so that their prayers may not be hindered. Galatians 3.28 is another passage that I believe teaches very clearly that women are not spiritually subordinate to men. Galatians 3.28 And in this particular context, <clears throat> the uh, Apostle Paul has been uh, demonstrating that uh, all of God's people become the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They become the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. An interesting point because uh, in the Old Testament, women did not receive the sign of circumcision, but men uh, did alone. In the New Covenant, men as well as women are to receive the sign of baptism, indicating that they are heirs of the covenant, that they are the children of God. And we read in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There is neither male nor female. For Paul says, you are all one in Christ. Emphasizing again that women are not spiritually subordinate to men as to Uh, their position before God. They are children of God. Now, having established those two points, I think very clearly from the Scripture, let's move on to a third point. However, women are functionally subordinate to men. 
women are functionally subordinate to men, subordinate in authority. I'd like to have you compare something, uh, a couple passages, because I think this will bring out what I'm really saying most clearly. In John 14, 28, I want to illustrate this functional subordinate position illustrated by pointing out that Christ himself is functionally subordinate to the Father. In John 14:28, Jesus is speaking and he says, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, the cults love to jump on that one, don't they? Uh, They love to be able to... uh, uh, They try to demonstrate from that particular passage that uh, Christ is, as to essence and nature, inferior to the Father. Uh, That uh, the Father, uh, in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, the Father created the Son, and that through the Son, He created everything else. But the first creation of God was the Son, um, so the so they teach. Uh, the uh, Jehovah Witnesses are the uh, uh, the uh, uh, really the heirs or the descendants of Arianism, and uh, uh, Mormons may have some similarities uh, in that as well. But uh, but uh, that's really the uh, specific uh, teaching of the uh, of the JWs. But. Uh, what we need to realize, just a, a little bit, I'm not trying to uh, uh, to impress anybody at all with uh, with any kind of uh, uh, Greek here, but I think that this is really helpful in understanding the difference. Very simple little lesson here. The word that's used for great, greater is the Greek word myzone, myzone, M-E-I-Z-O-N, myzone. And uh, uh, it simply means superior in position, and it has to do with a functional uh, type of position, greater. Now compare that with another, with another passage, which speaks of Christ. Hebrews 1:4. Hebrews 1:4. Now, this, these first few verses in Hebrews are, in the first chapter, pointing out the superiority of Christ to the angels. All right, so that it's emphasizing that Christ is not an angelic being. Christ was not the first uh, created being. Christ is exalted above all the all the angels. In fact, the angels are commanded to worship Christ. But notice what it says uh, in verse four, speaking of Christ having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You see the word better. I'm going to contrast two words. Greater in John 14.28 and better in Hebrews 1.4. The word, the Greek word in Hebrews 1.4 is kritone. 
K-R-E-I-T-T-O-N, Crytone. That has to do with quality and essence and nature. He is better than the angels. Now, I can say that, and you can say as well, that the Prime Minister is greater than you as to authority and position. But you cannot say that the Prime Minister is better than you because that has to do with essence and nature. And so what we're speaking of here uh, simply is in this particular point, women are functionally subordinate to men. We're talking about that men are greater, not better. They are greater as to function, as to uh, authority, which God has given to them. And so let's look at uh, some passages that would, um, uh, again, demonstrate this from the Scripture. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11. And I'll begin at verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now Paul, in this particular passage begins a discourse on some abuses that were occurring within the Corinthian uh, uh, worship services. He first addresses the first part of chapter 11, the abuse of women coming to worship without uh, wearing head coverings. And second, he, he uh, addresses the abuse of men who were overindulging in, in uh in wine, uh, and therefore coming to the Lord's uh, Supper in an unworthy manner. And so, um, uh, that uh, appears to be specifically because of the, uh, the uh, gender that's used later on, that it was a man's problem. Uh, gener- uh, the gender was, was man and, uh, with regard to uh, drunkenness. Uh, and so he addresses an issue related to men, and then he, I mean women, and then addresses a, an issue related to the men uh, with regard to worship. And in this uh, uh, first uh, part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, in verse 2, Paul declares that what he is bringing to them is apostolic tradition. When he says, and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. Now, apostolic traditions were not the same as man-made tradition. Jesus, uh, in uh, Matthew 15 and in Mark 7, tells uh, uh, the the people uh, that they're not to observe uh, man-made traditions uh, and because those traditions, particularly uh, those kinds of traditions, enter into worship and they make void and null the uh, the commandment of God. They corrupt worship. But in this particular case, uh, quite the contrary. Uh, This is not man-made tradition. This is apostolic tradition. Apostolic tradition 
is that which was delivered to them as it came directly from God by way of revelation from God. The apostle being the prophet, being the mouthpiece of God and delivering it to the congregation. That's quite different. So what he's about to tell them is not uh, some kind of pious advice. It's not a suggestion. Uh, These are God's words. These are God's commandments. And so we go to verse 3. Paul begins this section. We'll come back to some of the uh, the, pa- the verses uh, that uh, uh, have to do with head covering. Uh, we'll we'll get to those, but we're going to uh, look at verse three at this point. He begins with verse three you know, by outlining a functional distinction, a functional distinction, not a metaphysical distinction, not a spiritual distinction, but a functional distinction between male and female. And he says that I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now again, note very carefully that just as Christ is functionally subordinate to God the Father, according to 1 Corinthians 11.3, so the woman is functionally subordinate to the man. And just as Christ, who is the Son of God, as to His nature, as to His essence, and as to His Sonship, He is one in nature. One in nature with the Father. There is only one God, existing in three persons, all having the same divine nature. And even so, when we speak of man and woman, there is one nature that they were created in God's image. And yet, don't overlook the functional distinction, the difference there between Christ, between the Son of God and the Father. The Father is greater than I, Jesus said. And the functional difference between the woman and the man. And in the same way, though Paul doesn't say this, we could say, even as Christ said, Father is greater than I, uh, so we could say, of uh, the man, in that sense, is greater than the woman. Now, uh, in verses 8 through 9, in the same chapter, notice what it says. Why is that the case? Is that arbitrary? Is that capricious on God's part? Did he just uh, have a, a whim to do that? No, there's a reason why that's the case. Verses 8 and 9 gives us that reason. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. You'll recall uh, that in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18, looking at the very order of creation, that uh, Adam was created before Eve and Eve was taken from the rib of Adam. And in verse 18 of chapter 2, we find these words, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper comparable to him. A helper suitable to him. And so, a couple things I would note about this. I don't believe that this text means that God created Eve because Adam was lonely. I don't think that's the uh, the uh, uh, the meaning of that uh, when it says it is not good that man should be alone. That uh, that uh, in some sense here on the sixth day God had just created Adam because I believe he was created on the sixth day as well. And because I affirm a 24-hour day within creation, uh, Adam wasn't all of a sudden after creation uh, having this this great uh, surge of loneliness. Uh, having just been created by God. Okay, that was not the problem. Um, the problem was that he was alone and, and by himself could not fulfill the commission that God had given to him to subdue the earth, to, to replenish the earth, to exercise dominion over the creation by himself alone. He needed a helper. He needed a helper uh, who was suitable to him for the purpose of procreation, for the purpose of of uh, ministering to to the children who would uh, covenantally pass on that heritage to, to subdue the earth, and so that was uh, the the essence. That's the uh, uh, the reason God says it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him, suitable to him. Now, I simply emphasize that uh, because uh, uh, this is not in back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just that's not talking about um, uh, that uh, uh, man is over woman as to authority, because that's a cultural uh, order. Uh, it's not based on anything cultural. Uh, there are not cultural considerations uh, that uh, Paul has in mind. He's not uh, some kind of, uh, uh, of uh, a sexist. He's not some kind of uh, 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 chauvinist. Thank you. Yeah, he's not some kind of chauvinist. Um, he is, in fact, uh, simply stating uh, the order of creation. Uh, that, and remember again, this is what God himself declared. Uh, to Paul. This comes by apostolic tradition. These are not Paul's uh, rambling thoughts, uh, his uh, thoughts uh, while dreaming one night. Uh, these are the words of God. And I would make this uh, particular point uh, as well, that this functional distinction that is emphasized in 1 Corinthians 11:3 exists in the home, it exists in the church and it exists in society at large. God does not make any distinctions as to that order. My judgment as I study the scripture in any of those areas. It holds true in each of those areas. I don't think that I need to probably establish or uh, in uh, the functional distinction within the home. Ephesians 5.22 uh, speaks of wives submitting to their husbands. 
uh, in the church, 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we'll look at uh, uh, a little bit later, uh, speaks of women um, not uh, exercising authority over men, not teaching or, or ruling over men, um, uh, but learning in submission. And, um, uh, and for society at large, Isaiah 3.12 uh, as a judgment that God uh, brings upon his people says uh, that uh, your oppressors are children and those who rule over you are women uh, as uh, a sign of God's judgment uh, that uh, when uh, um, that may be simply a figure of speech that the male leaders are, are uh, effeminate uh, may be what is being said there but nevertheless whether it's a symbol or not if the actual reality of the case if women actually are ruling over men, how much more severe the judgment uh, that God brings if it's not simply a symbol. And so, um, uh, from that I judge that God's uh, order is not that women should rule, even in society at large, should rule uh, and have positions of authority over men. Now... This functional, one more point under uh, this fun- functional distinction. This functional distinction is also indicated in the phrase that we saw earlier in 1 Peter 3 7, the weaker vessel. Speaks of women that we are to, especially as husbands, honor our wives because they're a weaker vessel. Now, there's probably a lot of ideas as to uh, what uh, that refers to. I would uh, submit to you that I think that uh, um, uh, that this, at least, uh, we must uh, say about what weaker vessel means, that it refers to woman's subordinate position, that it refers to their subordinate position, much like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where you find members of the body of Christ spoken of as weaker members, but because they're weaker, they are to be shown more honor. So, in like manner, uh, I would say that uh, what's, uh, what Peter is saying is something very similar. Uh, I think the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that the more visible gifts of teaching and ruling, these kinds of gifts, uh, certainly have their honor that go along with it because they are more visible. Um, But there are gifts, members of the church, uh, who do not have as visible uh, of gifts, and yet they're not to be uh, uh, thought of uh, as uh, having no place in the church. They're not to be dishonored or or ashamed because of that. In fact, those who do have more visible gifts are to show them honor because they have a very important function and role in the ministry of the church. Likewise, Husbands, because their wives are the weaker vessel and in, in, uh, subordinate uh, to them, um, they are weaker. They are to be shown honor um, uh, uh, because of that fact. So, um, that I would uh, offer. Uh, we could get into whether or not uh, that refers to their constitution and nature, but uh, as I understand it statistically, that women outlive men. Uh, Maybe we could talk about generally as to pure muscle and you know that kind of thing, brawn. That uh, 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 that perhaps uh, men are are uh, stronger and women are weaker. 
uh, although uh, some women that I've seen uh, may uh, call that into question, some of these on, in the Olympics, and <laughs> some of these women lift weights, etc. But uh, uh, I know I wouldn't want to tangle with some of them. But the uh, uh, but I think that we can say for sure uh, that uh, this uh, this issue of their subordinate position certainly implies there being a weaker vessel. All right, now I want to make another point, one last point under the foundational principles. This would be the fourth point. Women are wonderfully gifted to serve in the Church of Jesus Christ. Women are wonderfully gifted to serve in the church in, in the Church of Jesus Christ. And I'll just give you some some examples. Uh, women ministered to Jesus and the, the disciples in Luke chapter ten, verses thirty-eight through forty-two. Um, you remember the case of Mary and Martha uh, ministering to the Lord Jesus uh, through the means that they had been blessed with, and apparently women followed the Lord Jesus. Uh, or opened up their homes to him on a regular basis as they passed through uh, uh, the area where they lived. And so they were on a fairly regular basis ministering to them and perhaps financially contributed uh, to uh, them. So women had a very important part in ministering to even Christ. Uh, Another uh, case of ministry, Priscilla uh, with her husband Aquila, uh, together, both of them, it says, it makes it very clear in Acts 18.26, uh, explained to that fiery evangelist, Apollos, the, the way of God more accurately. Uh, not simply Aquila, the husband, but Priscilla as well. And uh, I think that's important. Uh, we'll come back to that particular point later on, but I do want to make the point that women, together with their husbands, uh, and in this particular case, did minister uh, even to evangelists, uh, to men who uh, uh, were very gifted in the church at that time. Uh, and the third point is that the four daughters of Philip uh, were prophetesses. Um, in Acts 21.9, Acts 21.9 um, might be good. That tends to be a pretty controversial passage at times just to look at that. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was headed toward uh, Jerusalem and uh, it seemed that wherever he stopped along the way he was getting um, uh, he was being told by prophets that uh, he would be bound he would be uh, uh, bound in Jerusalem turned over from the Jews to the to the Romans that seemed to be the consensus of all the prophets as he went from one particular town to the other and it says in verse 8 of chapter 21, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. That is one of the, I think, seven uh, uh, that were appointed to serve uh, the tables uh, in Acts uh, uh, 7. He was one of the seven. But it was also an evangelist as well. And it says in verse 9, Now this man... Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And I think that a lot sometimes uh, has been uh, implied. Uh, many people have drawn more than, than is there out of that particular passage. Uh, all that's stated is that they prophesied. It's not stated where they prophesied. 
It's not stated the context in which they prophesied. It says that they had the gift of prophecy. That's uh, uh, certainly uh, following along with Acts chapter uh, 2, verses 17 through 18, where, um, quoting from Joel 2, 28 29, that uh, the Holy Spirit would be poured out and your daughters, your sons and your daughters would prophesy, your maidens would prophesy. And so, here we find uh, uh, this being the case. I would... I would uh, simply, based on other passages of Scripture, which we will eventually get to, uh, at this point I would simply say uh, that I believe that uh, that they uh, had uh, the gift of foretelling the future, future events. Perhaps even were those who foretold the uh, the uh, bondage that Paul would uh, be uh, coming into, but they did their prophesying in the context of their father's house. Uh, not in the context of the church. Uh, that's where Paul was when this is specifically mentioned, uh, that they prophesied. And uh, so it was not, uh, there, it's not spoken of, there's nothing that would lead us to believe that this was done in the context of a worship service. Uh, so that, that I think, uh, uh, that is all that we can say from this particular passage. I don't think that we can say any more uh, about... Uh, um, uh, where they where they prophesied, but I think that it's important to note that I that uh, uh, that they were under their father's roof. They did they were under their father's authority, and uh, that I think they prophesied much like I would draw the parallel that much like um, uh, Priscilla uh, going with her husband to to uh, to address. Uh, the issues of God more accurately to Apollos under his authority in his presence so I would uh, draw the uh, similar analogy that that these uh, daughters of of Philip prophesied under the authority of their father and most likely in the context of uh, of uh, his home uh, fourth example of ministry uh, Phoebe uh, is called a servant of the church in Romans 16, 1 through 2. And again, uh, some uh, draw from this that she was a deacon uh, because the word there can refer to either a servant in a special sense, meaning deacon, a deacon is the same, uh, same uh, diakonos, the same word, um, or it can refer to a gen- in a general sense, a servant. Um, I don't find any place else in Scripture where women uh, are are uh, identified as deacons, um, and uh, we know that in Acts 7 that would probably have been the prototype uh, of, of the office of deacon. In Acts 7, um, those men that were chosen uh, were uh, uh, were uh, uh, well, all of those chosen were men and not uh, not women. And uh, in uh, I would also say in regard to that in First. Timothy chapter 3, that uh, where it uh, has the qualifications for deacon, and then you find this little little phrase in 1 Timothy 3. Let's look at that for just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 is where the issue of women comes into uh, this discussion, but verse 8 begins, likewise deacons must be reverent and gives qualifications of, of, um, 
of the uh, uh, male deacons. In verse 11, likewise, you know, the New, New King James says this. I'm not sure what the King James the Authorized Version says, but it says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, uh, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, that's probably uh, somewhat of an interpretation. Um, uh, the, the word there can mean uh, women or wives. It can be used, the Greek word can be used either way. And so it could refer to the, the wives of the deacons, or it could refer to the widows uh, that we uh, find in First Timothy chapter 5 who uh, assisted uh, the deacons. Uh, but we're not deacons. Not, we're not ordained or set apart to the office of deacon, but assisted the deacons in carrying out their ministry. And so, uh, again, there's no, uh, as far as I can judge, there's no evidence that would uh, uh, specifically uh, uh, require uh, an office of, uh, of deacon for deaconess, basically. Um, we notice in, uh, uh, fifthly, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, who lab- Paul says, who labored with him in the gospel. Who labored with him in the gospel. Now again, um, um, women could labor in the gospel with Paul uh, by uh, uh, through evangelism, through discipleship of, of children and other women. We ought not again to read particular into that particular uh, uh, passage uh, more than the, than is there that uh, all that that is saying is that uh, they labored with him. They were there side by side with Paul. But it doesn't uh, infer that they proclaimed the gospel, they preached the gospel to men or anything like that. Again, when we find some of these obscure passages, we have to allow those passages which are clear to interpret that which is obscure. And the clear passages we have not gotten to yet, but we will in just just, uh, momentarily. But, it, but again, I point out that women can be laborers in the gospel. I think that's important to, to note. Uh, they're not second-class citizens when it comes to the work of the kingdom. They can labor in the gospel. Uh, sixthly, widows in First Timothy chapter 5, as I've already alluded to, assisted the deacons in ministering to the needs within congregations and gives the qualifications that are needed for these widows. Um, And uh, that's uh, a very, very important ministry that uh, these widows had uh, in in caring for the needs in the church. And then uh, finally, uh, I would just make this point. Women taught children and other women in the church. In Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, women are... So, women who are gifted in teaching can use their gifts in the church. Oftentimes, we, we hear the argument, well, what are women supposed to do who have gifts of teaching? Doesn't the fact that they have gifts of teaching uh, imply that they should be using those gifts to teach uh, uh, in the context of the worship service, etc., etc.? Well, no, it doesn't imply that. It simply implies that they should be using their gifts to teach. And they can teach... Uh, according to the scripture, they can teach children or they can teach uh, other women. Titus chapter 2, uh, verse beginning with verse 3. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, 
that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now again, I would emphasize this passage cannot be cultural because it says very clearly, it doesn't say that the culture may not be blasphemed or offended. It says that the word of God not be blasphemed because people could specifically uh, bring uh, their their scorn uh, and um, reproach against God and his word if women do not carry on in this particular way. And so this is this is not a cultural. This is uh, this is something that that um, surpasses culture. This is the the clear teaching of God's word with regard to women, their proper role teaching other women. And then finally, we we know um, um, in Second Timothy three fifteen that um, that perhaps this has to do uh, mostly with uh, Timothy's instruction by his mother and grandmother. Uh, but I think that the, it's appropriate to apply this as well to the uh, church context. Um, it says, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the holy scripture, scriptures, which you are able, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And um, uh, so uh, this uh, speaks of uh, Timothy being instructed in the in the holy scriptures. Um, and most likely, uh, it was through his through his uh, uh, grandmother Lois in chapter one, verse five, and his mother Eunice. So these are the various uh, uh, gifts that women can have and can use in the ministry of the church. Um, so women need not think that they are uh, limited in being able to serve God because they are not able to teach men. Um, uh, they uh, have great uh, possibilities uh, to, of ministry, and they ought to, uh, we ought to, as elders, encourage that, and uh, uh, they ought to uh, desire that themselves uh, uh, to use those gifts. Now, come to basically the uh, last uh, portion of the, uh, of the study, and I've got about... Uh, seven or eight minutes and I want to try and wrap things up for this for this evening anyway. Uh, second main uh, point, uh, moving from foundational principles now to principles related to the role of women in the church. Principles related to the role of women in the church. And I want to speak first of all of the role of women in worship. The role of women in worship. And in order to make this point, I'm going to have to uh, follow along this this particular argument because this is really critical, I think, as we look at uh, the role of women in worship. I think, you know, thankfully in this congregation, uh, women issues related to women uh, in uh, and the role of women in worship informal worship have been dealt with very well. But I want to uh, draw uh, an analogy or, or make an application uh, from, uh, from that context uh, to another context. And so follow, follow this line of argument with me, if you will. 
the point that I'd like to make is that there is no real distinction between formal and informal worship in the church that can be concluded from the Word of God. I cannot find any particular passage that makes a distinction between formal worship and informal worship. I find passages which I believe teach a distinction between corporate worship and private worship or corporate worship and family worship but not between formal worship and informal worship. In other words, what I'm saying is I don't find a passage in the scripture that would lead us to conclude that there's a difference between the worship that goes on on the Lord's Day and the worship that should go on on Thursday nights. That we would consider that formal and this being kind of an informal worship. But the point I want to, to make is I do not see that distinction drawn out uh, in Scripture between uh, that kind of a, a service. Um, we have tended to understand that certain specific elements are biblically required in formal worship. For example, these are the elements of formal worship that we, I think, would all agree must be in formal worship. The praise of God with psalms, the reading of the Word, the ministry of the Word, through teaching or preaching, prayer, the benediction, and the sacraments as ordered by the elders. Those would be the, the basic, essential elements of formal worship. And I agree with that. Those are the elements of worship. And also, we would tend to uh, uh, understand that the women, that women have clearly defined roles in formal worship as well. That they're not to teach, they're not to rule over man, they're not to pray. In fact, uh, we can conclude from uh, 1 Corinthians 14 they're not to speak as an individual at all. As a single individual, they're not to speak in a worship service. They can, they can sing corporately, but they cannot speak individually, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll look at. And I agree with that as well. I believe that that is biblical. But we have not carried all the same considerations just mentioned to informal times of worship, have we? When the church gathers together at Bible studies or prayer meetings, and I submit, I'd have you consider these things. Um, this is not coming down as some kind of papal declaration. I submit this to you for your consideration at this point. That those elements of formal worship should be carried over to informal worship. And as well, that the distinctions... Uh, or that the those things that are appropriate that I mentioned earlier with regard to the role of women in formal worship are equally appropriate and required in informal worship at Bible studies and prayer meetings. You see, there's a distinction between corporate worship, as I said, and family worship. For example, in family worship, we don't you know, have any sacraments 
there's no benediction. Uh, women may ask questions uh, and participate in the discussion. You know, in fact, they're encouraged to do so, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Don't ask the questions. You know, in the worship service, ask your husbands at home. The Bible says. So they're encouraged to interact with in, in, in the context of family worship with uh, what's being said. In fact, my son, when I'm gone, leads in family worship. But I wouldn't ask him to do that in, in corporate worship or formal worship on the Lord's Day. See, there are distinctions, what I'm saying, is between formal worship and, or corporate worship and, uh, and family worship as well as there's distinctions between that and, and, and private worship. But I don't see those distinctions made in Scripture between formal times that we gather together on the Lord's Day and informal times when we gather on some other time. Whenever the church is called together, I believe, I submit to you, that the same principles that apply in the one apply to the other. Um... The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, says, lays out many, many guidelines for worship. But do you think that he changed all of those guidelines that he has to offer in 1 Corinthians 14 because they were meeting on a Thursday as opposed to on a Sunday? That everything kind of went out the door? That they could... Uh, um, you know, women could all of a sudden ask questions because it was Thursday rather than Sunday. Um, that uh, they didn't have to wear their head coverings because it was Thursday when the church gathered together to worship God rather than Sunday. Um, see, I don't see that distinction made. In fact, we know from Acts chapter 2 that the church gathered regularly, daily, meeting from house to house. So there were many meetings. It wasn't only on the Lord's Day that they gathered together. What are we to conclude without any other evidence, without anything else being said in the Scripture, as to how those meetings were conducted? Are we to conclude that they didn't do those things? Or are we to conclude that, that because it was a worship service, that because the people of God gathered together, the church gathered together, that the same principles applied? Well, I would submit to you that, that the latter is the proper way to understand that unless there is some, some uh, good warrant and explanation for making a distinction between those two services, formal and informal. And uh, that would be what I would encourage you to uh, be thinking about if, if indeed there is that kind of distinction I have not been able to find any myself. Um, I think probably, uh, it's at 8.15 right now, I've got a few more things. Let me just conclude by reading this quote from B.B. Warfield. And um, uh, then uh, we'll pick up next, Lord, or next, <laughs> next Thursday uh, where we've left off here. B.B. Warfield has noted concerning the use of the word church in 1 Corinthians 14, um, the, just the, how many times that it, that it occurs. Incidentally, it occurs seven times in 1 Corinthians 14, and the word churches occurs twice in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's quite significant, I think, that to point that out because 
because what it's saying is these are the things that are, be do- are to be done in the church. It doesn't say in the formal worship or in the informal worship, but in the church. And the church is the assembling of the saints. Whenever the saints come together, that's when the church meets. Now, is this, this, is a, this is a meeting that was announced on the Lord's Day to gather all of God's people together. So the church is meeting. Now, B.B. Warfield says, quote, He requires women, speaking of Paul, he requires women to be silent at the church meetings, for that is what, quote, in the churches, end of quote, means. There were no church buildings then, and he has not left us in doubt as to the nature of these church meetings. He has uh, just... I'm trying to figure out what I wrote here. He has he had just described them in verses 26 and following. They were of the general character of our prayer meetings. They would appear, in other words, to be a little more informal than what our normal services would be on a Lord's Day. Warfield continues, The prohibition of women speaking covers thus all public church meetings. Now note carefully what he says here. It is the publicity not the formality of it, which is the point. It is the public nature of the meeting and not the formality of it. It is the fact that the church gathers corporately, that is, at point, not whether it is a formal or informal meeting. And that is uh, the end of the quote. And so, in conclusion, um, uh, we haven't made all of the applications uh, that... Uh, that we want to make from uh, that. We want to look at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, we want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll get into next uh, Thursday. But at this particular point, uh, let me simply conclude by saying that based on, on that, um, uh, on that particular, um, those final points, I would submit that that those things uh, that are uh, appropriate, biblically warranted for worship service on the Lord's Day, we should be uh, practicing on Thursday meetings, incorporating all of those elements of worship in them. We ought to be singing psalms. We ought to be uh, uh, reading the Word. We ought to have ministry of the Word. We ought to have um, uh, a benediction and uh, at appropriate times even have, have the sacraments. Um, and so, uh, I don't think that there's any, uh, again, that I can see any uh, violation uh, of principle uh, in regard to that. Second of all, I would submit that because of that, I would uh, also ask you to consider seriously the, the whole issue of the role of women and uh, the same principles that apply uh, on the Lord's Day, uh, do they therefore not apply on Thursdays when we gather to, to worship and even a, a less formal context, but nevertheless gather as the church to worship God. And so that would be, that would be the, uh, the end of uh, the, uh, the lecture, and I will open it up uh, uh, for questions. And uh, since uh, at this particular point we're 
we are simply uh, submitting these things uh, to to you to to to, uh, uh, to uh, discuss. I don't think that uh, unless uh, unless a woman, uh, I guess, has come to that particular conviction, or a husband believes that that's uh, the case, I I would not necessarily forbid at this particular point, uh, you know, women asking questions. But but I would ask you. Um, uh, Perhaps even preferably, uh, if you have a question, uh, this is if if we if if we do go this route as a congregation, this direction. See, I I think that women can ask questions through their husbands. It's not as though their voice would not be heard or their question would not be answered. Uh, but I think that they can ask through their husbands, um, uh, and uh, uh, or single women ask uh, you know those who are still at home ask through their fathers or single women. Uh, asked through, um, uh, say, an elder uh, of the church or something like that. So I think that that can still be accomplished. But uh, anyway, uh, I'll uh, I'll field uh, uh, any questions that you might have at this time. We'll take a few minutes of uh, Q and A. Well, something uh, there says, "Let the master husband at home." <laughs> so let them keep silent. Let the master husband at home. Too. Right. So if they're going to get their husband to ask a question. Mm-hmm. They would be uh, whispering in your ear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one question that Linda was whispering in my ear <laughs> is uh, uh, she was wondering about uh, interdenominational conferences. Uh-huh. Now, see, uh, most churches don't care if they're asking questions. Right. You know, I don't think most of the churches are even looking at the issue that actually looking at it look crazy these Um you have all of these different, like we had Steve Schlissel here and we had Boston here, whatever. Right. And there's question and answer periods with these public things. Right. Now, that's, now what, how do you look at that? Is that a gathering of the church? Mm-hmm. You know, even though it's interdenominational things, I mean, non-believers would look at it as a gathering of the church. Mm-hmm. And so they would come in just with all kinds of people speaking in unknown tongues to hear all these women are asking questions, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's kind of a tough situation. But then you have an entire denomination of women that didn't ask questions, and all these other denominations of women asking questions be kind of a right. Well, yeah, these are these are obviously concepts that uh, are not widely held, uh, views not widely held uh, amongst uh, even Reformed Christians, and so I think that we would uh, want to focus uh, in the most narrowest con- concentric circle within our own. Church and and seek to to uh, arrive at uh, uh, yeah that's right to make sure that we understand that we are really clearly uh, we've uh, tried to look at the various objections and things like this uh, so that before we begin to go outside and uh, to promote these views that we really know of which we speak but I think that if we are convinced of that. Um, if we are calling again the church together uh, in that kind of a context, I guess at this particular point I would be inclined to say that uh, we would uh, uh, want to do some instruction and uh, we'd want to uh, talk to uh, 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 you know various people about uh, about the the proper decorum and uh, uh, what was appropriate for women in that context. See, now, now, I think this is a subject that men and women both need to understand. Mm-hmm. But actually, like at the women's Bible study, it might have been better for women like uh, yourself or mm-hmm. whatever to have gone. I think I have some that might be useful for Sure, go ahead. I'm glad I was here. 
what I was saying is, are you saying then we should apply the regular principle to these needs? Mm-hmm. Because if we are, then I shouldn't be asking any questions because I'm not an elder. And none of the means should be praying or speaking either. Well, this is after after the uh, the, the we will conclude basically the the service and ask questions after. So the questions would be outside the context of the time of worship. I would, I would, you know, perhaps the need to repeat the questions so that they're on the on the tape. The question was, if the uh, worship time is already concluded, um, isn't it then appropriate for women to ask questions uh, anyway? Um, and I would, uh, I would say that. Uh, um, uh, based on some principles that we'll look at next uh, 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 next Thursday, that I would uh, understand that uh, when um, uh, women should first of all go through their husbands uh, to seek to uh, understand, go to their husbands first of all, to try to understand what uh, questions they have uh, and ask their husbands these particular questions. They should not come to the elders first of all, um, and I think that you know again, uh, you know, women who are not married, uh, if you're living at home, go through your father. Uh, women who are widows, uh, who are uh, divorced, uh, I think that um, uh, they would have uh, probably a more direct line of communication. They don't have anybody uh, uh, under whose oversight they can you know, can do that. So I think that they. Could have a more direct line of communication to the to the elders at that point, but uh, that would be the first thing that I would say. You know that we we want to maintain the integrity of the of the home, of the authority in the home. We want to encourage fathers and husbands to be learn uh, to study the word. If they can't answer the questions that their wives bring to them, then together they come to the elders and ask the question. I have Brian's question about uh, if we have a gathering where we have a set speaker and we have, don't we also have to take a look at the intention of the gathering of the church? Is it just, uh, is it, are we coming down and we think we're going to worship at this time on this Friday night and Saturday? Is it the kind of worship with this uh, special uh, guest speaker or just uh, a session of the gathering of the yeah, the question is um, uh, whether uh, in special uh, gatherings, when we invite a special speaker, uh, whether that is a uh, uh, an actual worship service or is it uh, um, uh, more broadly a conference, uh, something that uh, should not be considered a worship service. And um, um, I think that that's an area in which we can. I thought about that issue. Um, as I was preparing for the study, and I think that that's an issue that we can perhaps uh, pursue, uh, try to clearly define, you know, what constitutes a worship service and that kind of thing. That may be the same question again, though, formal or informal, is a distinction that may not be good. Yeah, well, that's 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 again the kind of thing that I'm. Um, that that would be my uh, major major problem initially with that. Uh, you know, do we have? Do we have those kinds of uh, when the church gathers together, 
when the church gathers. Now, if the women simply gather together, I don't consider that to be a, uh, um, a formal worship service because that's only a part of the church, an aspect. Uh, but when the church as a, as a whole is called to gather together, then I think that I don't know what would distinguish that, how we would distinguish that kind of meeting from a worship service at that point. See, I, that's, that's my problem, is how, in the, using the Bible itself, using the Word of God, what kinds of things would we use to distinguish that from a worship service? Yeah, even on, even on the Lord's Day, what would you call that distinction? Because there is obviously a distinction even right now in our services, because we have a time where everybody speaks up and asks for prayer and things like that. Right. The, I consider there has to be some type of a distinction that we're making right now. What would you call that? Do you have a name for that distinction you make right now? Or? Between what goes on before the worship service begins? Before and after. If, uh, especially if we're moving in that direction, then what would we call it now? Uh, just to say in a setting like this, what would that distinction be called? Um, either prior or to or after the worship <laughs> service. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I would, I would, as I said, the form, the form that I would follow, or uh, at this point, encourage people to think in terms of, would be for the women not even to ask questions, as you said, they should do it at home with their husbands. That would be the proper context in which well, to do it. To yeah, and and they they would first go to their husbands, and if their husbands can't answer the question, together they would come, as in the case of uh, uh, Apollos, or, I mean Aquila and Priscilla, and come and. Either for if they want to correct something that the minister said, or if they want to ask a question, or or you know have some elaboration or something like, they come together and ask yeah. the question. Like if I'm going to disagree with something, right? You first discuss it with me. That's right. And then I can come. Yeah, and you both could come together. Right. The only reason we're making a distinction of opening and closing of worship is it has more ramifications, more implications for the just the women. It has an implication for the men as well. Right. And so. But, you know, the women speaking in the church, I agree with what you're saying as well. That the women should go to their husband first after they go home as a matter of practice. Yeah. 
That's a very good question. Um, well, the uh, uh, you know, following the chain of command that we've just uh, uh, mentioned, that uh, you know, that would uh, that would in, in imply that he would go through uh, the husband uh, to uh, uh, to uh, you know to address this particular issue with the you know with the, uh, the wife. At least let him know I have an issue that I need to talk with your wife about as it were to gain, you know, permission, you know, so that you're just not stepping into an area, you know, without the husband not re- realizing what's going on and uh, that I would want anybody to do. Now, I may not need to know all the specifics at that point as to what is going to be said, but I think that I would want somebody to come to me and say, I need to talk to your wife about, you know, that. And I think that would be the, the proper way to address the, address the issue. <laughs> I mean, if he knows all the details, or no, like let's say um, there's a second uh, defense. Uh, you talk to the husband, saying that I have a problem with your wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you set up on a time. Ten minutes later, I'm asking if the husband requires you present for the discussion. Yeah, I I don't think that uh, that would be uh, I don't think that would be necessary uh, unless again there's some kind of uh, uh, problem uh, that occurs. Uh, I would I would again hope that they were able to resolve it between the two of them without it you know becoming more broad uh, than than necessary. Uh, if for some reason, as in any other case, it's necessary to bring somebody else in, I would think the first person to be brought in would be the husband. Yeah, I don't know that I'd go, uh, like, say, Jimmy offended me, which he doesn't. <laughs> but I don't think I would, I don't think her, herself, as a friend of me, mm-hmm. would want me to go and tell Lyndon every time I was offended with her without, you know, it's almost like running I off. Think so now, Brad. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like running. How many offenses have there been, right? Maybe we should take her before the elders. <laughs> Wait, I have the elders. <laughs> no, uh, it's almost like taking someone. You know, it's like Matthew 18 says, go to the person alone. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so like uh, all of a sudden you have this distinction with women. Unless, you know, unless they're a woman, then you got to go to her husband first mm-hmm. to get permission to go to her alone or something. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it doesn't seem like it's, it's there to be had. Mm-hmm. It's like if uh, a genie offended me or something, I would think that, I, you know, my first attempt would be you reconcile things with her, like say, look, whatever you, you know, you did or said or whatever really offended me, blah blah blah. And if her and I can work out, fine and dandy. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would be taking it to her, her superior, her immediate superior, being her husband. Mm-hmm. That would begin the process, you know, Matthew 18, where I take it to her husband. If he doesn't hear, then I take it to the church, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I wouldn't want to, you know, run. Why, why run off and ask him? You know, just run right to the top or thing like that. It doesn't seem to be almost. Uh, Contrary to the spirit of Matthew 18, and that is Matthew 18 is just the first two people try on a personal, private level to reconcile their differences without publishing each other's sin. Whether it be, you know, publicly or even to her own husband. Her husband doesn't have to know every little thing she's done wrong. And well, see, that, that's what's being said. So all we're saying is, are you going to set up a private meeting with another man's wife without informing the other man simply that there's going to be a private meeting? regarding the problem. Nothing more. It's still going to stay a secret as to what it is. 
still total privacy. It's just propriety that we're concerned with here. Is it okay to go meet with another man's wife in his house privately? Is that why? That's oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, all, all we're doing is informing that there's a problem and that there'll be a meeting. Nothing more to it. So the, the matter itself remains secret, but the man's aware that this is a masculine situation and a meeting needs to take place. That's all. So it's still a secret. It's just keeping a proper order in terms of offending the other man. Like there's a lot of things that could be assumed, especially when the church is bigger. A man goes into another man's wife alone while he's away at work. That in itself is a very unwise move. It could be reported. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, or as a general, as a general rule, though, in terms of keeping, you can honor the man's authority just by letting him know that the situation is there. You haven't broken anything in Matthew 18. Because the issue of Matthew 18 is simply secret. Keep the secret and keep the private. Yeah, but Linda's so curious. He's <laughs> 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 yeah, in his case. I'm a secret. 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 Yeah, well, I, I think probably to uh, to go. I would suggest going through an elder in that case. Um, you know, just having a, a, you know an elder act as to say I have a uh, not sharing any of the details. I'm just uh, um, planning uh, a uh, a meeting with uh, this uh, this person, and so that again, it it, it seems to me it's a point. Uh, again, it, you don't find it in Matthew 18. I agree, Brian. But I think that uh, it's the kind of thing, it seems to me, that can, uh, it does, it's not a violation of uh, Matthew 18, it, but it's at the same time a certain kind of protection. Yeah. But it's also a protection uh, on, on whole issues of, um, of yeah, reputation and those kinds of things as well. Um, and I think it, it, it again honors uh, it shows respect and honor for uh, uh, for you know heads of households. It, it, it leaves in, intact the integrity of the home and things like that. I I, I think that that's the uh, some of the issues that are really uh, important there. Um, did, uh, did you have a question or was it answered? I guess I yeah, was it answered already? Yeah, go ahead. Um. So do you feel this applies to any time, you know, say our family fellowship with your family, would you find it inappropriate for me to ask you a question at that point um, on some theological thing or something I'm not certain about, or I guess I'm just wondering. Yeah, it's a good question. I would I would say that uh, in any kind of situation, the, the proper order to follow is to ask your husband first regardless that that you ought to go through your husband it seems to me with those kinds of things and then in the context again of uh, of the uh, uh, with with the husband present you know it's okay for you to voice the question but during the you know in the context of your husband you know asking that uh, particular uh, that particular question that would seem to be again what is being taught in principle the principle that's being taught in in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and in Acts 18. Um, it's uh, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't consider Acts 18 to be a formal worship service. You know, they approached approached the Paulus very informally, 
but you know she didn't do so in the context of uh, I mean she didn't approach so she probably could have approached uh, him very much by herself and uh, talked to him about you know certain things that she had a question about that he preached or, or things that he needed to learn or something like that uh, because uh, uh, both of them went apparently they both had something to say um, and uh, she could have I guess theoretically done it by herself but she went with her husband I guess I'm just thinking practically speaking, I have a hard time seeing how women are going to be able to interact with men at all because you never know what's going to come up, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I just don't see practically how you, you can even keep fellowshipping without the rules, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying, like, mm-hmm. uh, unless it's just going to take a lot of time learning how to do it, mm-hmm. but it's not going to come naturally at all because that's not the way that the old customs do when a question oh, pops up, you ask it, you don't wait till you go home and mm-hmm. then maybe two weeks later you get around to asking the question by then it's a non-issue you know what I mean well you probably I mean most questions I would think you probably have discussed with your with your husband I mean very seldom do brand new uh, questions probably just pop up out of the blue that you've never thought of before that may happen occasionally that's not normally the rule I wouldn't think so I would think that if you're just if, if it's something that uh, you've thought about and you 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 know know that it's been something you've talked about, that if your husband's present, that you could ask it. Um, I feel the same way. Um, I think that it even goes as far as the, the husband by his authority could give a blanket uh, authority to say to the wife, uh, "I trust your judgment in your question answers, and then you'll fill the judgment." Now. You do it in my presence, and you ask the question. You have my blessing to ask the question. But if at some point you ask a question that we've never discussed, you know, I reserve the right to say, "Hold it a second. We've never talked about that." Or you answer that, mm-hmm. okay. But on all other questions, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So there may be one pop up here and there. Yeah. Well, the thing that I see is it says let the women keep silent at churches. I don't see if you and Linda and, and Linda and I get together for supper that I would call that, you know, the church. How is that the church? Well, yeah, but I'm just carrying it over because he said at any time a husband should have first heard all these things that their husband discussed at the home and then come corporately. So I'm saying if that if we're going to follow that authority rule to the nth degree, then. I um, that would carry over into every kind of fellowship or relationship that we have with anybody. Well, considering the matter that people speak to one another, like you and myself, both pondering this question and talking to each other, these are questions. Yeah, you and well, I that's are questions. That's why we're going to be able to do that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the things I was thinking of was uh, I'm going to be responsible as the priest in my house for what happened to Shelly as my wife. Mm-hmm. So I want her coming to me first. Mm-hmm. And, and if she's going somewhere else after too, I, I want to know about it because I don't want just any, uh, you know, Joe Blow, Armenian, or whoever, uh, giving her advice on spiritual things. But when God, I'm going to stand before God on Judgment Day for everything that's gone on in my house because I have to say in my house. Yeah, and I, uh, the point I'm making simply is the principle that, that in 1 Corinthians 14, of, in, which is in the context of in the church. I see applied in even in more informal situations outside the context with an example, the example I mentioned was in Acts 18. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.